and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, August 5th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story, Up, Up, and Away. Will Iowa M&A deals continue their lofty trajectory? By Joe Gardiaz. Two central Iowa-based companies with already expansive operations across the United States have globally made merger and acquisition headlines over the past year, with multi-billion dollar marriages to partners that promise to make each more weighty powerhouses in their respective industries. In an all-cash deal announced in February, energy giant Chevron announced a $3.15 billion acquisition of Renewable Energy Group based in Ames. As the companies said in their joint announcement, the deal, quote, combines REG's growing renewable fuels production and feedstock capabilities with Chevron's large manufacturing, distribution, and marketing position, end quote. The acquisition will help Chevron, the second largest oil and gas producer in the U.S., reach its goal to increase its renewable fuels production to 100,000 barrels a day by 2030. Another significant match, valued at $2.7 billion, was the now-consummated proposal by Interactive Corp's Dot Dash to acquire Des Moines-based Meredith Corp. As Dot Dash Meredith, the merger, quote, would create a digital powerhouse that would reach 195 million online consumers monthly and 95% of women to become one of the largest publishers in the country, end quote. A third major deal announced this spring was the news that Trinity Health and Common Spirit Health, which have jointly owned and operated Greater Des Moines-based health system Mercy One for the past 24 years, will end their joint operating agreement and Trinity will acquire the remaining half of Mercy One's facilities and assets valued at about $122 million. Based in West Des Moines, Mercy One is a regional health system that serves more than 3.3 million patients annually. While these were each big announcements, the past 12 months have been fertile soil for cultivating significant merger and acquisition activity at a range of dollar values, both nationally and in Iowa. BCC Advisors, a Des Moines investment banking firm, has represented buyers and sellers in numerous transactions across Iowa. The firm's co-founder and president, Steve Jacobs, noted earlier this year that despite a 23% slump in global M&A during the first quarter, there is, quote, optimism for strategic deal activity in 2022, end quote. Total global M&A transaction value in 2021 reached an all-time high of $5.9 trillion, he noted, in a post on the firm's website. He wrote, quote, The lower middle market has proved resilient and is showing momentum, as this segment exhibits insulation from the uncertainties affecting other areas of the market. The backlog of uncompleted deals from 2020 and early 2021 have abated, and the environment is competitive, end quote. 
The business record reviewed notable deals of the past year that we've reported on, as well as researching additional deals that have been completed over the past 12 months. We came up with about two dozen interesting combinations across the state in a variety of industries. While we sought to include a variety of deals in our roundup, this list is not all-encompassing. A look back at the past 12 months of M&A activity among Iowa companies. July 10, 2022. Concrete Supply, Inc. of Des Moines and Hamilton Ready Mix of Jefferson. Hamilton Ready Mix in Jefferson was acquired by Concrete Supply, Inc., which has headquarters in both Des Moines and Omaha. Part of the Rasmussen Group, Concrete Supply operates more than 25 plants with 300 employees. Hamilton ReadyMix operates ReadyMix concrete plants in Jefferson, Boone, and Fort Dodge. June 17, 2022. Ag Certain of Ames and Maytag Dairy Farms of Newton. Ames-based Ag Certain Industries, Inc., a food, agricultural, and bio-based product development, manufacturing, and marketing company, acquired Iowa-based blue cheese maker Maytag Dairy Farms in Newton. Ag Certain is a portfolio company of the private equity firm Midwest Growth Partner, based in West Des Moines. June 8, 2022. G&A Partners, and Focus One Source, Des Moines. Houston-based G&A Partners announced it is expanding into Iowa and Nebraska with its acquisition of Des Moines-based human resources outsourcing provider, Focus One Source. May 16, 2022. Brown and Brown, Inc. and Claim Technologies, Inc. of Des Moines. Claim Technologies, a Des Moines-based healthcare claims audit company, was acquired by Brown & Brown of Massachusetts LLC, a subsidiary of Brown & Brown, Inc. May 11, 2022. 1ROrx of West Des Moines and Medley Pharmacy. 1ROrx, Inc., a West Des Moines-based provider of integrated pharmacy services to patients in underserved markets, recently completed an acquisition of Medley Pharmacy, Inc., a pharmacy operator in Missouri. With the acquisition, 1ROrx has expanded into the Missouri market. May 9, 2022, Assured Partners, Inc., and Midwest Group Benefits of Decora. Midwest Group Benefits of Decora has joined Assured Partners, a Florida-based insurance brokerage. April 19, 2022. Trinity Health and Mercy One, West Des Moines. Trinity Health and Common Spirit Health, which have jointly owned and operated Mercy One for the past 24 years, have signed an agreement for Trinity Health to acquire all of the facilities and assets of Mercy One. Based in West Des Moines, Mercy One is a regional health system that serves more than 3.3 million patients annually. February 28, 2022. Chevron and Renewable Energy Group of Ames. 
Chevron Corp. announced it would acquire the outstanding shares of Ames-based Renewable Energy Group in an all-cash transaction valued at $3.15 billion, or $61.50 a share. The acquisition combines REG's growing renewable fuels production and feedstock capabilities with Chevron's large manufacturing, distribution, and marketing position. February 18, 2022, Camping World and Bowling RVS of Ottumwa. Illinois-based Camping World Holdings, Inc. agreed to acquire Bowling RVs based in Ottumwa to expand its recreational vehicle offerings. Bowling RVs will be Camping World's fourth location in Iowa, the company said. February 10th, 2022, Carlisle and Involta of Cedar Rapids. Investment firm Carlisle agreed to acquire Involta, a Cedar Rapids-based data center company. Involta is focused on hybrid IT and cloud infrastructure and owns and operates 12 data center facilities and an in-house 12,000-mile fiber network. January 18, 2022, Element Materials Technology and JMI Laboratories of North Liberty. Element Materials Technology acquired JMI Laboratories in North Liberty to expand pharmaceutical and biotech testing capabilities in North America and Europe. With the acquisition, London-based Element expands to a team of more than 1,000 experts in 23 facilities across North America and Europe. January 11, 2022, Allstate Industries of West Des Moines and Allied Plastics. An affiliate of West Des Moines-based non-metallic components producer Allstate Industries, Inc., acquired Allied Plastics, LLC, a Madison, Wisconsin-based thermoformed plastics manufacturer. The combined business will be one of the largest providers of non-metallic components in its markets, with eight manufacturing facilities in the United States and Mexico. December 15, 2021. Workiva of Ames and AuditNet. Workiva, Inc., based in Ames, acquired global audit content and services provider AuditNet to strengthen its position in governance, risk, and compliance platforms. AuditNet created an online portal, portal for the global audit community. November 29, 2021. Integrity Marketing Group and PIPAC Health and Life Insurance Brokerage of Cedar, Rapid, Cedar Falls. Dallas-based Life Health and Wealth Products Distributor Integrity Marketing Group, LLC, acquired Iowa-based independent marketing organization PIPAC, PIPAC Health and Life Insurance Brokerage in Cedar Falls. The acquisition enhances Integrity's reach in the Midwest health and life insurance markets. November 16, 2021, Integrity Marketing Group and Brokers Clearing House of Des Moines, Des Moines. 
Integrity Marketing Group, LLC, acquired Brokers Clearing House, a brokerage general agency based in Des Moines. The transaction will enable, enable Brokers Clearing House to take advantage of the full range of Integrity's platform of proprietary resources. November 10th, 2021. Clinical Inc. of Iowa City and Digital Artifacts. Clinical Inc., a clinical trial data and technology company, acquired Iowa City-based technology company Digital Artifacts. Data derived from Digital Artifacts will be used to enhance clinical study data through the convergence of passive and active digital assessments. November 8, 2021, 1RX of Pleasant Hill and GRX Holdings of West Des Moines. 1ROX Inc., a Pleasant Hill-based provider of telepharmacy services focused on underserved, quote, pharmacy desert markets, end quote, announced that it had completed an acquisition of GRX Holdings, LLC, a leading pharmacy operator based in West Des Moines. October 12, 2021, Gallagher and River Valley Capital Insurance of Dubuque. Arthur J. Gallagher and Company acquired Dubuque-based River Valley Capital Insurance, Inc., Founded in 2007, RVCI is a retail property casualty brokerage that specializes in providing insurance coverage for the trucking industry, with a focus on long-haul trucking firms in the Midwest. October 6, 2021, Interactive Corp. and Meredith Corp. of Des Moines. Meredith Corp., producer of magazine titles such as Better Homes and Gardens and People, announced it would be acquired by Interactive Corp's Dot Dash subsidiary for $2.7 billion. The deal involves the entity that holds Meredith's National Media Group, which comprises its digital and magazine businesses, more than 40 titles in digital brands, and its corporate operations, in an all-cash transaction at a price of $42.18 per share. October 4th, 2021, Dupaco of Dubuque and Home Savings Bank. Dupaco Community Credit Union, based in Dubuque, announced it would acquire Home Savings Bank with two branches in Madison, Wisconsin, from Home Bancorp Wisconsin, Inc., in an all-cash transaction. The acquisition increase, increases Dupaco's total branches to 20, and its assets to $2.8 billion. September 24th of 2021, Light Edge of Altoona and Cavern Technologies. Light Edge, an Altoona-based co-location cloud and managed service solutions provider, acquired Kansas-based data provider Cavern Technologies, to expand its footprint in Kansas City. It's the first acquisition under Light Edge's new ownership by GI Partners. September 3, 2021, the Manitowoc Company and Aspen Equipment Company of Ankeny. 
The Manitowoc Company, Inc. completed the acquisition of substantially all the assets of crane dealer and work truck upfitter Aspen Equipment Company, based in Ankeny, for $51 million. The acquisition of Aspen will expand Manitowoc's direct-to-consumer footprint in Iowa, Nebraska, and Minnesota, with new sales, used sales, parts, and service to a variety of end markets. September 2, 2021. Easy Knock and Farmland Finder of Des Moines. New York-based residential sale leaseback company Easy Knock acquired Des Moines-based farmland-focused sale leaseback provider Farmland Finder. The acquisition allows Easy Knock to bring its sale leaseback model to a broader audience. Farmland Finder markets itself as the first online marketplace for farmland, delivering transparency and liquidity to the agricultural real estate market. August 26, 2021. Eagle Point Software of Dubuque and Knowledge Smart Limited. Dubuque-based e-learning and employee training provider Eagle Point Software Corp. acquired Knowledge Smart Limited, a United Kingdom-based online skills assessment provider. The acquisition will enable Knowledge Smart to deliver rapid platform enhancements that help the design and construction markets upskill and work more productively. August 11, 2021. Workiva of Ames and OneCloud. Workiva Inc., based in Ames, acquired New York-based OneCloud, a next-generation integration platform as a service provider. The acquisition solidifies and accelerates Workiva's position as a leading cloud platform for financial, regulatory, and operational reporting. Workiva has worked with OneCloud as an original equipment manufacturer partner since July 2019. And August 9, 2021, Spahn and Rose Lumber of Dubuque and Metro Building Products. Dubuque-based lumber and building materials distributor Spahn and Rose Lumber Company closed the acquisition of Georgia-based Metro Building Products to expand building materials services to contractors and homeowners. The acquisition unites two longtime lumber and building material companies. This list was compiled from press release announcements and public online databases of transactions and is not intended to be an exhaustive list of all deals that have occurred. We also interviewed Jason Giles, a mergers and acquisitions attorney with Nymaster Good Law Firm in Des Moines, to get his perspective on the past year and what lies ahead. Giles said, I would say it's been fairly active over the last year. When the pandemic hit, a lot of folks hit the pause button and backed away from an active acquisition mentality. Nobody knew what was going to happen or how long it would last. There was a sense of the need for preserving cash. I think we've seen some of that cash now being utilized through acquisition opportunities, and especially over the last year, I would say, most of us in the firm have stayed fairly steady 
to fairly busy with M&A activity over the last year. There haven't been the lulls you typically have. A lot of folks get transactions done by year end, and then you have January and February where people tend to regroup. I don't think we've seen that kind of a dip or a slow time. It's just been busy over the last 12 months, he said. Giles followed those remarks with a big caveat. But it feels a little tenuous, he said. I don't know how long it's going to continue. We've seen some deals that have fallen to the wayside unexpectedly. Some questions posed to Giles. Does the bear market in stocks influence the level of enthusiasm for M&A deals? The market definitely impacts transactions, Giles said. I think in Iowa, we're a little slower to see that influence. It tends to make its way here a little bit later than maybe on the coasts, which is expected. And the political situation, supply chain issues, potential legislation, all of that plays into it. There were some revisions to the tax code, and a lot of businesses were looking at ways of making acquisitions before those potential revisions. Of course, we didn't really see the revisions come about, but it was still something folks were thinking about. Also, historically, family members that might consider taking over a family business are less likely, generally, to want to do that now, he said. So that's helping to generate more external sales of companies as business owners are aging. How would you forecast the deal pipeline in the next 12 months? We're seeing some transactions that are on hold for various reasons, which seems to indicate that maybe it won't be as robust as what we've seen over the last 12 months. But we're not really seeing anything in direct evidence of slowing transactions. Has talent acquisition become a bigger rationale behind M&A deals? I think it has been a driver and will continue to be a driver. I've been surprised by some of the transactions I've worked on in which they've stated, this is so we can bring in additional people because we are not able to otherwise. Supply chain issues are another area where that could produce more M&A activity, Giles said. Instead of waiting for the suppliers, go purchase the suppliers so that you have a ready-made supply. So yeah, I think definitely those economic considerations are part of what's driving the acquisitions. From the Closer Look column, meet a leader you should know. Quentin Leaf, Chief Strategic Investment Officer, Holmes Murphy. By Joe Gardiaz. Quinton Leith's Iowa roots extend back to his family's farm near Creston. His wife is also an Iowa native from Centerville. So when he had the opportunity to work remotely for his Chicago-based employer, private equity investment firm FlexPoint Ford, he moved his family of five to Indianola about a year ago. As a vice president at FlexPoint Ford, he was primarily responsible for sourcing opportunities evaluating and executing investments and mergers and acquisitions, and working with portfolio companies to increase and create value. Earlier in his career, he worked as an analyst for Macquarie Capital, a major global financial services group. After working remotely for about six months, a former colleague suggested that he look into opportunities with insurance broker Holmes Murphy, 
and introduced him to CEO Dan Keogh, Leith recalled. We talked about some ideas about where we thought I could play a role in helping them achieve them, and there was a pretty quick meeting of the minds, he said. That's the story behind how Leith joined the Waukee-based company in the newly created position of Chief Strategic Investment Officer. If you had asked me to script out what I would look for in an opportunity back here in Iowa, I probably couldn't have done it as well, he said. This opportunity just fits the space I've spent a lot of time in over the years. The profile of the company, the culture, the employee ownership model, the focus on the community here, the growth opportunities in front of them, and the role I can play. I mean, it just all lined up so well, it was too good to pass up. What's the biggest learning curve you'll have in this new role? In my role at FlexPoint, I'd say probably a majority of my time was spent on looking at investments in businesses in the insurance space. So I've got familiarity with the sector, and we actually were investors in companies that have similar profiles to Holmes Murphy. We helped execute on an M&A strategy where we increased revenue by 50% and doubled their geographic footprint and helped grow the company across the nation. There's a much more balanced approach with Holmes Murphy towards growing the business through M&A and then also more organically building or developing businesses from the ground up. I think I will be learning more about those opportunities and the execution of them than necessarily the M&A side of things. The other dynamic at play is the M&A side of the world has become so incredibly competitive. There are probably 30 private equity-backed insurance brokers out there, and they all have a huge appetite for M&A. Whereas Holmes Murphy, again, with its dual or balanced approach to growth, has, in my view, really unique capabilities. Will you be looking for M&A opportunities on behalf of affiliates of Holmes Murphy, such as BrokerTech Ventures and others, or just for Holmes Murphy? I think that's something that will evolve over time. Certainly my priority and initial focus is on the core business outside of the venture opportunities. We've got a great team that's driving broker tech ventures. I'm always here to support in any way I can, and I do think I bring some unique perspective around some aspects of it, but they won't be a primary focus of mine, at least initially. Is your position part of a strategy to grow Holmes Murphy from a regional broker to a national footprint? I think there always has been and remains an interest in continuing to grow the footprint. We're going to remain focused on our core geographies, but continuing to think about pushing the boundaries of our footprint is certainly interesting for us. And there are lots of opportunities to do that in addition to becoming deeper in the areas where we're already strong. Will you be hiring a strategic investments team? I've been brought in to focus on it full-time, but then leveraging the resources that we have here to execute on that strategy. Over time, that could certainly evolve, but in the near term, there's no plan to build out a big team to execute this. Will you be traveling a lot for this position, or has that changed with hybrid work and air travel challenges? There are probably some permanent or semi-permanent changes in the way that business is conducted. 
rather than jumping on a plane, fly out, sit in a two or three hour meeting and then fly back that evening, a lot of those can be conducted virtually for early stage or introductory visits. Anything that we're interested in pushing forward on, there's a huge value, in my view, of being face-to-face and developing that relationship, particularly for the strategy that Holmes Murphy has, which is why we're more focused on finding partners that are going to help us build a better business. Holmes Murphy has gone about building the business, but the hard way, as I like to say. It's easy to go out and acquire businesses. All you need is a big checkbook and guys to go out there and actually run it. Whereas truly building a business from the ground up or developing new lines of business and successfully executing on that, that's really hard. That's one of the things that really drew me into the company. How did you pick rural Warren County for your move back to Iowa? Long term, at that time, I was uncertain of what I was going to do. So some of the guidelines that I had was reasonable proximity to an airport because I was flying back to Chicago and other places. And we've got some immediate family in the area, and we were looking for a little bit of a break from urban areas. So it's been a great fit from all those perspectives, and we've really been enjoying it. What kinds of work did you do growing up on the family farm? Everything from cutting thistles and picking up rocks, and we raised cattle, so everything to do with raising livestock. I was one of four boys, so my dad effectively had free labor for a good 10 to 15 years stretch there. I was exposed to insurance relatively early on. My grandfather and mom ran the insurance agency in town, so I was around the business from a relatively early age. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, August 5th, 2022 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Our next story from the culture section. Change is in the air for Iowa Public Radio. Amid record fundraising, IPR looks ahead as independent nonprofit. By Joe Gardiaz. Myrna Johnson recalls the excitement of returning to her home state more than nine years ago to lead Iowa Public Radio. In many ways, 2022 is proving to be even more exciting for Johnson as IPR's executive director as the organization moves into its next 100 years of broadcasting, now as a newly independent nonprofit. This year, Iowa Public Radio celebrated its 100th year of broadcasting in the state as one of the earliest public radio stations to receive a federal license. On April 28, 1922, WOI Radio in Ames received its broadcast license, and WSUI Radio in Iowa City followed soon after that. Iowa Public Radio now serves more than 206,000 listeners in all of Iowa's 99 counties. Additionally, IPR for the first time raised more than $5 million in member funding, an all-time high and a goal that the organization hoped to hit in 2023, but actually achieved a year early, Johnson said. Our membership has been growing, she said. Public radio is sort of the original community-funded journalism. Back in the 1970s and 80s, 
the public radio world started inviting its listeners to share in the funding of the news and information that they relied on. And it's been a very successful model in the public radio world. And we'll just continue to build on that over time, she said. Perhaps the most far-reaching change is that Iowa Public Radio has completed its transition to an independent, nonprofit ownership model. On July 1st, IPR officially became the owner of its 26 broadcast stations, rather than managing them for the state's public universities. Since 2004, IPR has managed the public radio groups of the University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and University of Northern Iowa. The opportunity is to become a listener-focused, community-driven institution supporting the state, and it gives us full ownership of the enterprise, Johnson said. Our only mission now is to serve our listeners and to serve the audience. Johnson has called the move a, quote, next logical step for Iowa Public Radio, which has always received the lion's share of its funding from private donors, including individuals, businesses, and foundations, as well as grant support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In recent years, the tide has turned further away from government support, IPR lost more than $1 million in state funding over the past two years, including an $875,000 cut in 2020 by the Iowa Board of Regents, along with the elimination earlier this year of $345,000 in funding by the Iowa Legislature, as reported by the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Before she began her role as IPR's Executive Director in January 2014, Johnson was executive director of the Boston Schoolyard Initiative, which over eight years revitalized 88 urban schools' playgrounds into vibrant outdoor learning areas. She grew up in Ruthven in northwest Iowa and earned her bachelor's degree at Wartburg College and later a master of public administration degree from the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Her 31-year career in nonprofit management included eight years as a government relations associate for National Public Radio. Johnson, who currently is in her third year of a three-year term on the board of directors of National Public Radio, said that full ownership has been a, quote, very successful model, end quote, for many public radio systems across the country. The challenge, obviously, is we no longer have that somewhat safety of being inside a bigger institution, she said. And we're going to need to be really good at fundraising. But we feel like we're up to the task and we are excited about the opportunities that it provides us. Fundraising has been a priority from the very beginning of her tenure at IPR, Johnson said, and that has enabled a number of programming and technological enhancements that she and her team have been able to make over the past decade. It was clear we needed to focus on increasing our fundraising capacity and really just focusing on the service and just giving our reporters and our team related resources to do their jobs. So that's what I focused on, she said. And we've grown our audience. We've grown revenue. We're really in pretty good shape. So I've felt really proud of the work that I've done since I've arrived. Among specific accomplishments, IPR has in the past decade 
increased the size of its newsroom to include adding a reporter in western Iowa for statewide coverage, made a commitment to building a, quote, really great website, end quote, launched a number of newsletter products for listeners to access online, including a daily news digest, as well as specialty newsletters such as Garden Variety, Political Sense, and Studio One. Developed podcasts such as Here First and, most recently, From the Archives in celebration of the 100th anniversary. Going forward, each of the Iowa Public Radio Station's call signs will remain the same and they will continue to broadcast from their current on-campus studios as well as at its Grand Avenue headquarters just west of downtown Des Moines. I think it's going to be more administrative and behind-the-scenes changes, Johnson said. I don't think the listener will notice any difference on the outside. Here are answers to a few additional questions that the business record asked Johnson. Does the ownership change open up opportunities for new programming? We certainly have already had an immense amount of freedom to program these stations, but I think it opens our horizons a little bit to think about who our most important partners will be. And we found really useful partnerships and very successful partners in the public radio world. We're partnering on Harvest Public Media, which is a reporting partnership with other stations in the Midwest. Reporting on agriculture in the last year and a half, roughly, We're part of what's called the Midwest Newsroom, which is a partnership with National Public Radio, KCUR, Kansas City Public Radio, St. Louis Public Radio, and Nebraska Public Radio. We're sharing resources around investigative reporting, which is a great way for us to each have more support in doing investigative reporting and to collaborate on investigations. So that's exciting. Among other partnerships, IPR works with Side Effects Public Media in a healthcare reporting pu- collaboration. IPR has also partnered with nonprofit Report for America to fund a Latino affairs reporter and al- also partners with Hola America to share content and translate stories into Spanish. Almost all of these initiatives have been made possible because of philanthropic support. And we really see that as a growing area where we can make an impact together in the community. We can partner with businesses and with major donors to really make an impact in our community and to increase the services that we can offer to our listeners. What perspective has serving on NPR's board provided you? It's a great window on the public radio system, and it gives me a really great overview of what's happening out there. And it gives me, in some sense, some pride about the work that we're doing and how it fits into the bigger picture. One of the bigger trends in public radio we're all thinking about is our digital audiences as well as our listeners. So it's a really important area of work right now, figuring out how to serve new audiences particularly in the digital world, and also to find the right funding model for that. So there is some collaboration amongst NPR and the stations around fundraising for the digital audience. So I think that's probably the biggest thing right now, is that I think everybody's looking at that. 
But I'm super proud of what our team offers to NPR. Our reporters are regularly tapped to do stories on the NPR platforms, and I think they do a terrific job. How is IPR connected to the business community in Iowa? A large part of our income is from corporate supporters, and we do have very long-standing support from a number of businesses here in the state who have supported us over the years. I would also say that I firmly believe that a vibrant community needs a really strong public radio station and network, and we see ourselves as playing a role in creating a vibrant community. We're here in central Iowa, and our mission is to enrich the civic and cultural life here in the state. And so we feel like we're partners with the business community in making sure we have a great place to live here. Now turning to the Business Records Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business. Des Moines native returns from UK to launch U.S. Coding School by Sarah Bogards. When Des Moines native Elizabeth Tweedale moved to London about 14 years ago, she was applying her passion for coding in the architecture field. Since then, she has used it to teach children the skill and built the UK's largest coding school, Cypher Coders. Now she's moving back to the U.S. with her family to roll out a U.S. version of the curriculum, starting with her hometown and the San Francisco area. Founded in 2016, Cypher Coders is an in-person after-school program for children ages 6 to 12 that also started offering virtual courses during the pandemic. Tweedale took that opportunity to test some of the virtual courses in the U.S. and found a significant interest from American parents. A U.S. expansion was also natural because Tweedale infused the creativity she knew in the American education system into Cypher's model. She designed the curriculum to teach coding by engaging students through their interests and then showing them, quote, how they can use technology to make an impact in whatever they're interested in, end quote. Instead of going to a drones programming camp, for example, you might go to a camp about ocean conservation and learn about how drones are being used to find and collect plastics in the ocean and then learn how to program your own drone, Tweedale said in an interview with the business record. Her experiences as one of few women leading software developers and technology companies inspired Cypher's goal to introduce girls to coding and STEM subjects. Tweedale said six years in, 60% of Cypher's students are girls. Because coding and other STEM skills will be needed for future jobs, Tweedale said both the U.S. and the U.K. need resources in addition to school curriculum. She was able to attain, attain higher-level positions in architecture because of her coding background and saw a need when her co-workers were trying to teach themselves. Teaching coding more widely is more about fostering technology literacy than making sure everyone who learns coding becomes a computer scientist. 
She said tangential skills like computational thinking and collaboration are outputs of learning to code that the workforce will need to effectively interact with technology. What we need is a base proficiency in technology, coding, and more broadly, all of the STEM subjects in order to be successful in our future careers, but also just successful members of the community, she said. I'm a huge proponent of tech literacy being that third pillar in education because we have math and literacy, and unless we add technology as a core foundational skill, something will be missed. The business record connected with Tweedale during a recent visit to Des Moines. The Q&A has been condensed and edited for clarity. What are your plans for rolling out Coco coders in the U.S.? My main focus when coming back here was not just a blanket rollout of the U.S., but I really wanted to focus on the Des Moines area because it's so close to my childhood and then the San Francisco and Lake Tahoe area, which is heavily tech-focused anyway. I'm hoping to get some uptake from some of the local schools there in the greater Des Moines area and be able to offer help, even some curriculum support to the teachers that are tackling this in the schools as well, because we found that really helpful in the UK for schools there. Even though we're a fully remote team, we're focusing in on hiring in the greater Des Moines area. It's just the culture that I grew up with, but still feel very connected to. Where will you be based in the U.S.? We're going to be based in Incline Village on Lake Tahoe in California and Nevada. I plan on going back and forth between London, San Francisco, and Lake Tahoe, and the Des Moines area. How does learning to code enhance other future-ready skills you mentioned, like collaboration and computational thinking? I think being in the technology industry, but also the architecture industry, one of the things that I find is that the base foundational skills are not the skills that you take forward. Yes, of course, you learned how to write beautifully, but then you kind of have to adapt it to tell a story. For us, those skills came down to collaboration or computational thinking. Creativity is one of those softer skills, but it's still really important because unless we can teach the next generation to problem solve using technology and also not to be afraid of technology, then they are able to solve those big problems that we'll inevitably be faced with. This generation has been born with technology, so I think that they have the opportunity to understand how their relationship with technology works, and then they don't have the same fears that even me as a technology professional still has. This is one of the things that I always tell our parents, is to accept that our kids will always know more than we will. How can educators navigate teaching a subject and skills they may be learning themselves? One of the things that we like to tell teachers first and foremost is that collaboration is such a key skill and paired programming is actually a really amazing thing that happens in the industry. Oftentimes, getting students to pair up and work together is the best way to overcome some of those hurdles. The other thing is that I think with coding and children, it gives teachers an opportunity to turn the spotlight on some of those children that might not be as proficient in other subjects. 
what we've seen the most is that oftentimes you'll get the dyslexic kids or the children that don't think they're good at math, but then when they get into coding, they're amazing at it. We teach a Minecraft camp, and inevitably, some of the students will definitely know more than the teachers do. So I think it's just turning the teaching around in terms of how you can turn the student into the teacher in a way that you still have control of the classroom. In your experience, what drives results in attracting students to STEM, and particularly girls? For us, because we've taught tens of thousands of kids, what it really comes down to is that engaging content. One of the first lessons that I taught was this class of five or six boys that would be the kind of kids that would become computer scientists, whether we helped them or not. They were teaching themselves. They all finished the program within 30 minutes. We still had half the class left, and then they were all competing to see who has the best score and who did it the fastest. My next class was a class of 25 girls at a rural school in London, and it took us the whole class to get through the same project, and some of them didn't quite get to the end of their code. But the interesting thing was that they thought about everything that was in the game much more in depth. They were thinking about why they were making this game, and that was really an aha moment for me because they were engaged in what the content is about. There are some studies that say that unless girls are interested and engaged with STEM before the age of 13, they won't go on to study it in higher education. Because we focus on 6- to 12-year-olds, it's that crucial time to just lay down an interest so that they know that it is a possibility. Where are the places you have to go when visiting Iowa? There are two restaurants that I always have to eat at, which are Brugger's Bagels and Poncheros. My main thing that I always try to get back for is the State Fair, of course. It's my favorite Iowa pastime growing up, and my kids have been to many state fairs. Presenting in Spanish by Emily Barsky I recently had a coffee meeting with Jorge Jr. Ibarro, CEO and team leader of Ibarro Realty Group and Manny Toribio, a commercial specialist with the team. They told me at the recent Keller Williams family reunion, their real estate group is an affiliate, in Orlando, Florida, Ibarra gave the first ever presentation in Spanish for the national event. It was such an honor to be able to be part of the first ever Spanish-only breakout session here in the U.S. at Family Reunion for such a huge global real estate company. And this just shows how all industries are paying attention to the growing Latino market here in the U.S., Ibarra told me in a follow-up email. Ibarra and his team in Des Moines particularly focus on reaching the Latino market and providing resources specific to the needs of the Latino clients, such as materials in Spanish and English. The need to better see serve Latinos will only continue to increase as demographics shift, he said. As one indicator, Des Moines Public Schools data from the most recent school year shows that 29.2 students, 29.2% of students identify as Hispanic or Latinx. That's compared to only 9.8% 20 years ago. 
excerpted from Susanna DeBaca's column on leadership, the leader as chief wellness officer. For years, I worked at companies where leaders and employees alike were expected to get the job done at all costs. Pushing yourself to extremes was valued and rewarded as a sign of dedication and loyalty. I bought into that construct until one day when I realized I could not be an effective leader or live a rewarding life if I was not prioritizing my own health. I made a conscious choice to care for myself and to influence healthier cultures at the organizations I led. Creating a culture of workplace wellness is not always easy, especially when you are faced with change and disruption. But today, paying attention to employee well-being is an imperative for recruitment, retention, and productivity. The current workforce crisis has made it clear there is a steep price to pay when employees are absent or unwell, feel unsupported, or leave. Increasingly, leaders and board directors are recognizing the connection between employee wellness and the bottom line. Burnout and the bottom line. Each year, burnout costs the global economy an estimated $322 billion in lost productivity, says a recent McKinsey's Leading Off newsletter. That article references a 2021 McKinsey study that showed, since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, nearly 50% of employees have said that they've experienced symptoms of burnout. Similarly, an article called what Leaders Should Focus On in 2022 on Gallup's website references their 2021 study that showed burnout among managers in particular is growing worse, with leaders reporting more stress, anxiety, and depression than the individuals they manage. Leaders as Chief Wellness Officers With continued economic disruption and global uncertainty showing no signs of slowing down, Workplace cultures that support wellness have never been more important. Team members look to their leaders for direction and guidance, and setting an example of wellness is no exception. Leaders must assume the role of chief wellness officer, investing not only in creating and fostering cultures that support wellness, but also taking care of themselves in order to lead effectively. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, August 5th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.